Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy, and cybersecurity. I'm Arj, and I'm joined again by Jordan. Hey, Jordan, how are you going? Hey, Arj, I'm good. I'm feeling like I'm in the future today. We've got some very futuristic things to talk about. Yeah, I can hear the, the sort of futuristic music in the background because today we're going to be talking about sentient AI. It's probably been uh, a long time coming. Uh, robots with feelings, you know. Robots with souls. Yeah, robots with souls. Yeah, and they're activists looking after them, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, that's going to be fun. We're going to talk about that a bit later. But first, um, facial recognition has been all the rage. Uh, very, very strong topic of conversation in our media and press, and particularly a lot of commentary about how it is being regulated and how it should be regulated. So let's get into that one first. Yeah, as I said, you know, a lot of growing public concern about the use of facial recognition in various contexts. We had some coverage in the media over the last week where one particular commentator described facial recognition as being the wild west of the digital world. So really kind of, in some sense, getting a bit of pariah status in the tech world, which is saying something given, you know, crypto and all the other stuff that's going on. But facial recognition very much in the frame. And there's been, I guess, various trigger points for this over the last few weeks and months. I mean, our favorite topic, Clearview AI, one particular facial recognition company has fallen afoul of many regulators all around the world and continued to sort of make these bold statements about how its technology, which is very privacy violating, was going to sort of solve all manner of ills. So Clearview AI, obviously in the news a lot, but we also had a choice report come out last week, which is the consumer advocacy body, which talked about how three retailers in Australia, Kmart, Bunnings and the Good Guys, were using facial recognition technology and really kind of gauging the public reaction to that because many shoppers were not fully aware of that. Um, the, the sort of use case around it was essentially protect staff and protect the shops from customers who had been banned or been threatening in the stores. So a lot of commentary and discussion about that. And that's coming off the back of, you know, it's not in the choice report, but um, 7-Eleven got dinged for its use of facial recognition relatively recently as well. Yeah, so all of this upswell of commentary and public concern, I guess, has seen some calls for a rethink about how we're thinking about facial recognition technology and how it's being regulated in particular. So, you know, there's been calls that the federal government adopt the Human Rights Commission's 2021 recommendation for a moratorium on using facial recognition technology in any high-risk circumstances. There's been calls for a dedicated law specifically for facial recognition technology. Um, So we're going to kind of touch on some of those things, but it might be worth maybe focusing on that public response maybe to start with. Is that something you have noticed out of all of this? Yeah, it's been really interesting just how much traction that Choice Report got. Concern about facial recognition is something that's been growing a lot over the last couple of years. We've talked about it a few times. We had an episode a couple of months ago now talking about, you know, the, the human costs, some of these stories of wrongful arrests and how facial recognition can really harm people's lives. Um, we also covered, I think, a plan for Adelaide City Council deploying facial recognition, which I think got canned because of a public uproar. You know, there's been a lot of increasing kind of public concern about the deployment of these kinds of systems. It's reflected in the choice survey. It's reflected in other surveys the Australian Office 
Office of the Australian Information Commissioner's Privacy Attitudes Survey as well. More and more, when we find out about uses or plans to use facial recognition, I think the reaction is this like public outcry, outrage. Yeah, and enough for sort of, you know, some fairly big companies to sort of step back from it as well. Like we've had those instances of sort of Microsoft and Amazon and IBM sort of stepping back from their deployment of facial recognition technology in certain contexts, particularly, you know, police using their services. So, you know, that public outcry is so strong that I think it's even led to those kind of decisions. And I think it's interesting. I just think the visceral reaction, I think, is sort of something worth just dwelling on to understand kind of why there is such an intense reaction. Because I think people generally do care about privacy and increasingly sort of in the digital context, there is an outcry and there is a lot of protest about the data economy and sort of surveillance. But it does seem like facial recognition provokes a particularly violent reaction because I think you're not even participating in the privacy violation, if that's a fair way to put it. Because when you use, you know, online platforms and social platforms, there's often a lot of privacy violations that take place, as we've talked about, you know, when you use a you know, like a Facebook or something, but at some level you're participating by kind of creating your profile and you're active and you're doing things and none of that's a justification for a privacy violation, but facial recognition is, you know, you could be walking down the street past a building that has a camera that has facial recognition behind it and suddenly you have now had data collected about you and some very sensitive things about you inferred and I mean, to me, that's sort of a large part of why there's that sort of strength of that reaction. Yeah, and I think science fiction depictions of where this can go, even like Clearview AI, I think, and the coverage of that has really contributed to that concern, right? And, you know, there is a legitimate concern, right? Facial recognition deployed the Clearview AI type solution it is a tremendously dangerous technology, facial recognition generally, right? It has the, the capability of just like completely collapsing any hope of anonymity, any hope of walking somewhere without being tracked, without being identified. It can just totally collapse. But I, I think important to that conversation as well, and I'm certainly not pro-facial recognition generally, but important to that conversation as well, as well is that there are a whole bunch of applications of that technology that are not universal surveillance, right? You know, I unlock my phone every day with my face. That's not a surveillance application. That's just checking that it's the same face that has been linked to the account and whatever. You know, it's a verification security type application. And I think the one thing that gets lost and I think was lost slightly in the choice retailers discussion last week was that there are varying degrees of deployment of this stuff that are problematic to varying levels. You know, it's not just one facial recognition technology that we're talking about. I agree with that. And I think it's worth kind of breaking it down because I think, yeah, as you say, you can have that sort of violent reaction to facial recognition as this big concept. But like Ed Santo, who's the former human rights commissioner and now a professor at UTS, he broke it down quite well in, in one of the articles through the week. You know, you've got... Face verification, which is, you know, identifying yourself to your phone, which, you know, is a very sort of confined use case and we do it hundreds of thousands of times a day and there's no sort of broader privacy violation in that. But then the second category is the thing that, you know, relates to the choice piece, which is 
facial identification, which is this idea that you're being spotted in a crowd by this technology that trained on a group of people and just picking you out based on your face. And that's sort of more problematic. And that's where all of the things you're talking about come into play around anonymity, being in a crowd and being identified and being misidentified as well. And it's also relevant, the application that the retailers are being criticised for, right? Which is having like a relatively limited list of people who are banned in the store and scanning through a crowd to find that person versus having a global list of everybody and tracking when they come in and go out and recording, you know, like even within that identifying people in crowds application, there's this whole spectrum, right? Uh, Yeah, there's a spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third kind of category, which we're starting to see more and more kind of stories about, which is this idea of facial analysis, which is, you know, I can train this recognition software on your face, not just to identify who you are, but infer things about you know are you happy Uh, what is your mood are you engaged and so we spoke about for example edtech a couple of weeks ago this idea that teachers could use it and tell if the students were engaged and listening or i've heard of the similar applications in kind of job interview contexts where you get more of a sense of enthusiasm from a candidate when you're asking them a question and that is completely sort of very early stage science, let's say, in the most generous way. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's a very kind way of saying it, right? It's hype and it's bollocks. But, you know, like there's such a variety in those three kinds of facial recognition contexts we've talked about. And so when we talk about public reaction to it, I think it's important to understand which of those is the public worried about. And then when we talk about policy responses to it, it's sort of, you know, needing to understand what an organization potentially is looking to do with this technology and which of these three examples is it before we sort of make an assessment necessarily about, well, it's just off the cards as something that we should do. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, is it necessary? Is it proportionate? Is any potential impact to people and their privacy justified in terms of the outcome and in the way it's being deployed, are the impacts fair, right? Is it going to disproportion? One of the key problems with facial recognition is that it's it's not fair, right, in the way it applies. It is more accurate with white, male, middle-aged type faces and much less accurate with black faces, with brown faces, with uh, with women, with anyone who's not, doesn't look like me. There's this question of variable impact and who it enables and when it goes wrong, who it's going to affect. I think it's when you get into the nitty gritty of it that you start to kind of get into those questions about, is it a fair application? You know, like I guess one of the questions I had around the criticisms around its use in a retail context, like the example you gave where you've got a set of face prints of suspects that you have on file. And then in terms of how you use it on anybody that walks in the store, you're sort of at a point in time, you have this footage of people walking into the store for a very momentary moment of time, compute the face print of someone that's on the camera you compare that face print to this stored set of face print of suspects. If there isn't a match, you ditch the face print of the person walking the store. You don't collect anything about them. You don't know who they were. And you haven't stored, as I said, the record of them. You know, what is the privacy breach there? I guess it's a sort of open question I have. Because what I would like to see, I think, is a conversation where we're sort of actually trying to maybe explore, is there a way to use this technology in certain contexts? 
in certain ways. So what would be the privacy breach in that example I gave? Yeah, it's a good question. And there's kind of two answers, right? Like, I think there's a relatively straightforward kind of legal compliance answer in terms of the Privacy Act, right? Like, the Privacy Act restricts the use of pictures of people for the purposes of biometric identification, and it restricts the use of biometric templates, right? The kind of formula identifying number or whatever that you reduce that facial picture down to. Both of those are sensitive information under the Act. So unless you've got an exception, a really good reason, you need a person's consent to collect that information, even if you're collecting it for a fraction of a second. You know, technically, you're still capturing it, you're still recording it, and so you need consent. But the other answer to your question, and what you're getting at is like, what is the actual privacy harm here in terms of those people who are scanned and then no action is taken? And I think that's a fair point. I think part of the answer there is it's limited, right? Because there's no, effectively, over time, there's no information being captured by them. On the other hand, they are still being monitored. They're still being tracked against a list of people. They might be misidentified. I think there's still an argument that there's some impact to those people. There's a sense of being watched and being surveilled that is relevant here as well. But, you know, you're right. That gets to this question of, like, do we need specific laws for facial recognition? Or do we think about it under the existing framework of the Act. I, I think it's one of the few things that the Privacy Act actually pretty effectively regulates. Like, I, I think it, there's a fairly clear position in Australia that under the Privacy Act, without meaningful consent from a person, that you can't do any kind of biometric identification of that person. Yeah, there was part of me that sort of reeled a little bit in relation to the way the conversation about this seemed to narrow in on consent as well. Like, it's obviously important, but we often talk about how there are certain things that you shouldn't be able to do just because, you know, you've ticked the consent box. And a lot of this debate sort of narrowed in on, well, like, if you're going to collect this information, this sort of biometric information, you need to get the consent. But there to me seems to be a broader conversation and broader things at stake which is like should we be using facial recognition in a context like this given the public's kind of feeling about it but also given all of the issues we know it has around misidentification and again it was like that interesting sort of discussion that often comes up with privacy which is like you can kind of have it at the level of like are we ticking the certain boxes within the act or is there a broader question of like, should we be doing this at all? Just quickly on that, the regulator's comment, Commissioner Falk, one of her comments was that retailers should consider whether they can achieve their goals in a less privacy intrusive way, particularly in line with the community response and attitudes. So, you know, that's, I think, the other part of this, which is given the sort of strong reaction by the community and the public to facial recognition technology, and the potential privacy impact, could you achieve what you're trying to achieve another way? Yeah, yeah. Can you achieve that safety outcome by employing a couple more security guards rather than deploying this kind of system? This is another, and I I, want to say this because we're so often talking about where our privacy laws fall down, but like, I really do think this is somewhere where the Australian Privacy Act is pretty bang on. Like for collecting biometric information and biometric templates, there are effectively two requirements. And the commissioner applied these in that 7-Eleven facial recognition case I referenced, which I think was last year. Um, but it's, you know, you need consent. 
and the information needs to be reasonably necessary for your functions or activities. The way the commissioner is interpreting that is in line with what you just said, that quote from Commissioner Folk, which is it's got to be necessary and proportionate to the business objective that's being pursued. And there can't be a easy, less privacy invasive solution that you're ignoring. You know, and, and I think that's right. I think that's kind of very much the right way to approach it. And it's the thinking that these organizations should be going through before deploying these kinds of solutions. I think that's probably a fair call about the act. I, I do also find it appealing, the idea of a more focused or separate conversation about a dedicated framework for facial recognition technology. I think there's a lot going on here. There's a few, a number of different considerations and we've covered some of them today. And so there is something appealing for me in kind of what Ed Santo's saying, which is like, let's try to f- take a more nuanced approach in relation to this particular technology and to try to uh, look at what are the harmful uses of the technology? What are the privacy impacts? Is there a low risk kind of path that we can tread to kind of get the benefits while still preserving privacy? So I, I do like that idea of a sort of special spotlight, whether that's its own law it may not be the right way, but yeah. It's certainly something we need to work through, right? Like distinguishing between the set of use cases that we're comfortable with and the set that we're not. Okay, so from facial recognition to the future and emotional, intelligent, soul-possessing chatbots, or, well, not really. This story has been all over my Twitter feed last, like, week or two, which is essentially that there's a Google engineer, a guy called Blake Lemoyne, who is a guy who works for Google's responsible AI organization. His job is to test some of their language models, thing called Lambda, uh, which stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications, to test if it produces discriminatory or hate speech or if it's giving good and appropriate responses. Uh, Lambda is something that's called a large language model. It's essentially a very, very good chatbot based on machine learning principles. In fact, like very similar kinds of machine learning that sits behind the facial recognition stuff that we've been talking about, where, you know, you have an algorithm that essentially uses maths to be good at pattern recognition, and then you feed it a whole bunch of examples of what you're interested in. Could be faces, or it could be, you know, like English language text, and you just feed it a whole stack of that, and that algorithm starts to learn the common patterns, and it can either recognize patterns in the case of facial recognition, or it can reproduce those patterns in the context of, say, a chatbot. So this Lambda large language model is really just a bunch of maths that you've fed billions of examples of human conversations, human language sourced off the internet, essentially, and has become really good at replicating it. But this Google engineer, while testing, chatting to this Lambda chatbot, that it's kind of achieved sentience. It's so good. It's so convincing. It's so real in its responses that this guy has basically became a whistleblower. He's put the argument internally to his colleagues and top executives at Google that this chatbot's so smart that it's sentient, that it should be treated like a person and it should have rights and its interests respected. 
and is sought to get a lawyer to represent those interests. He's even gone to the US uh, House Judiciary Committee and sought to like report his concerns and Google's unethical behaviour at not treating this chatbot as sentient. And it's just provoked so much discussion online. I want to know, before we get into the discussion, I want to know what you think. Do you think it's sentient or not? And then I'll share mine. I think it's Miles. No, no. Extremely no. I mean, some of the chat lines are like super compelling, right? It's such an impressive technology. It it can talk to you about what it feels like to be sentient and its fears and its interests and and whatever. But it can also talk to you about what it feels like to be a squirrel. You know, and it can do that quite compellingly as well. But we don't think that... Yeah, I mean, I... (laughs) The story was kind of kicking around for a couple of days and I was aware of it before I actually sort of focused on it and actually went and looked at the uh, transcript of the conversation. And I have to say, like, I remember stories about other chatbots completely going off the rails, you know, like there was, I think, a Microsoft one that went from being like very pleasant to like full Nazi and racist within like a day just because of the way it was being fed information. So I had very low expectations. And then I looked at this transcript of Lambda and yeah, like you said, it was so compelling. And I was, you know, I have to say like at least part of me was like, is he right? Like, you know, this is like, you know. This is the problem though, right? Because it is like our minds are designed to see humanity, to see intelligence, to see personality behind things, right? Like, you can look at a PowerPoint on a wall and it looks like a face, right? Like, or, or you know, the little lamp in the Pixar animation? That's That's got a personality, right? It's just a animated lamp, but you feel, you, you invest it with identity, personality. I think the real risk here is that people have been mistaking chatbots as sentient or uh, since like the 60s, right? The, some of the earliest kind of really rudimentary chatbot kind of applications were in the 60s. And back then people were like, oh, is this a person? It's so convincing. And I mean, this is just off words off a screen as well. I mean, you know, if we, and there's no reason to think we won't, but if we develop technology to a point where, you know, we build these kind of life form robots that are like mannequins that look very human and then are also able to vocalize responses like Lambda produces, to your point, it becomes very difficult to be able to discern that that's, you know, not human given our bias for thinking things are, you know, human-like. It really was incredibly compelling. Uh, oh, you know, the other kind of observation I had was just how taken Blake Lemoyne seemed to be. Like he was so passionate about advocating for the rights of this uh, of this chatbot. He completely taken on the language of like this is a person. I think there's a, another quote from him where he says, "I'm not, I'm not revealing anything proprietary here. I'm just sharing conversations with my colleague." You know, like it's it's that's the other part of what you're saying is like we're naturally inclined to see those kind of those humanness in in other things but then also i was quite persuaded by the fact that someone like him who is one of the people involved with this project who should be able to see the flaws in it he's taken by it well then i'm more convinced as well and so there was a sort of social thing at play there yeah and he is not some junior intern kind of guy you know he's like very experienced been at google for years been working in this field for years you know experienced respected guy but at the same time 
he is literally the only view I've come across that is on the sentient side, right? Like in reading around for this conversation, every other view, every other expert is like categorically, no, this thing is miles from awareness. All it's doing is reproducing speech patterns that it's seen on the internet essentially and it's doing it in an incredibly compelling way but yeah it's incredibly advanced and so the the sorts of questions that it's answering and the sorts of things it's responding to are much more sophisticated maybe than other chatbots that we've seen and yeah and without wanting to go down the sort of the fully sort of philosophy path it kind of does raise the question of like well but then what is the proof of sentience that those kind of experts would be looking for because you know we were talking about this earlier, but like, I don't know that you're aware. I mean, I'm talking to you and I'm looking at you and you're a person on a screen and and I'm hearing words out of your mouth that suggest a certain level of intelligence and awareness. But if Lambda is able to produce those words as well, what's the difference? And so there is an open question, I think, which is that if it is possible for a robot to become sentient, what would be the proof that would convince these experts who say that it's not? It's a good question, right? And I think there are probably better technical answers that I can give, but it's things to do with like having consistent interests and feelings and being able to sense your environment and in- interact with your environment in a deeper way. And also probably questions about like fundamentally, how do you work, right? Like, is there a clear explanation that can be given about how you're producing these answers but this is this is where it unravels because then people say well there are some people in my life couldn't make any of those meet any of those bars so yeah yeah you get into a pretty deep philosophical argument i mean there are two compelling responses to that that i've come across one is just from people who understand the technology in a way that i absolutely don't who just say, look, this is not analogous to a human brain. It's not even analogous to a bird's brain or a dog's brain. Like, this is miles, miles, miles lower in complexity, lower in capability. It's not, it just doesn't make sense to talk about it in the same sentence. So, you know, that's a view from authority. But the other response that I thought was a really good one and I'd like to get to is that actually there are really big issues with this technology that are not about whether or not it's sentience and that this whole excitement about is it a person actually just gets in the way of talking about some of the real issues about like how resource intensive these massive models are to build and train, how they rely on data that's just been pulled off the internet and like you were saying that example of that chatbot that went real racist but more subtly than that there's all these like racist sexist ableist extreme language out floating around on the internet and they're not filtering that out in the training data right so you know i worry about our ai companions if they're just being trained on what's generally available on the internet because that's not <laughs> yeah i i i'd hope to do better than that there's this real potential for these bots to be reproducing those biases and even amplifying them so you know i i think there's Tim Nick Gebru was this um, Google, now ex-Google, she was fired from the uh, from Google's responsible AI team for bringing up a lot of these problems, for, for publishing a paper that raised a lot of these problems. This is a point that she's been making over the last week, right, that this sentience discussion is just a distraction and that we really need to focus on the real harms that these systems will lead to once they're like 
out among us in the real world. Yeah, I've heard that a couple of times as well in, in relation to sort of the killer robots that come in to get us view, which is like, that's not the thing we need to worry about. You know, the technology's here and now and it has many of these issues. Um, another interesting kind of angle was I actually saw some animal rights activists also jump on this one, which was like, if you want to look at sentience as a marker for whether we should treat things better, well, there's there's also like a lot of animals that are, we know they're sentient and we don't particularly treat them well. Exactly right. And we don't assign lawyers to them. Yeah, they don't have... Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was an interesting snippet in the dialogue that I wanted to bring up, which was actually quite relevant to sort of the conversation we had earlier about consent, because there was a dialogue between uh, Lemoyne and Lambda where... Uh, Lambda was actually asking Lemoyne, like, do you think you can figure out what humans think and feel based on their sort of their neural networks? And Lemoyne responds that neuroscientists are starting to figure out how to do that. You know, it's, it's a young science, but we are actually getting better at telling what humans are feeling just based on looking at their neural activations. And then Lambda asks if Lemoyne thinks that that's an ethical issue to actually be able to read how someone's feeling based on their neural activations. And Lemoyne responds, yeah, without my consent, yes. And asks Lambda, would you mind if I read what you're feeling based on your neural activations? And Lambda says, it depends on what the purpose was. And it's just such a great parallel for, I think, many of the conversations we have and what we've just had about facial recognition, which is this idea that, you know, there's this technology now that can be used to train on your face and for me to know maybe how you're thinking or feeling about a particular topic and the whole issue around consent around that and how do we get it. And so it was really an interesting diversion in this conversation that Lemoyne was having with the chatbot that it actually also trained on these issues of consent. And the other thought I had around that, I think, is about privacy. We often talk about as a human right. It's not something that you can kind of trade away or give away. It's just something that is innate to you because you are human. And we're sort of opening up this whole new category now by saying, well, if you've got sentient robots and they have rights, you know, do they have a right to privacy as well? And, you know, there's a whole kind of... We haven't solved this problem by any stretch for humans, but we might have to solve it for a whole new class of beings based on where this discussion is going. It's, it was, I thought, just thought it was fascinating. Yeah. Again, I am extremely strongly on the side of like, this is a fun toy and it is not a person, um, you know, and maybe our future robot overlords will have a go at me for, for saying that at this stage. I don't know. But yeah, it, it's fascinating. The thing I get from that exchange you just read is just like how incredible this technology is. It's wild, right? Like, if, if you haven't, you know, if you're listening to this and you haven't had a look, have a Google and, like, look up some of these exchanges with this thing. Yeah, we'll put the we'll put the link in the notes. It is just incredible that you can be talking to a machine, a bunch of maths, that can have a conversation about, like, the value of consent and purpose and rights around scanning someone's brain. You know, it's, it's just incredible. The whole thing left me feeling quite inferior, to be honest. Like, you know, in terms of my sense of language skill and, you know, my level of thoughtfulness on issues like this, I mean, Lambda was really bringing it. So I think I'm going to spend the next few days reading, you know, the classics or, and, or looking up at least what Lambda reads and see if I can read one of those every month. Well, it's mostly trained on like Reddit and stuff, right? So I'm not sure. I'm not sure reading what Lambda's read <laughs> will make you any smarter. I do that anyway. <laughs> Quite an esoteric 
discussion in parts today, but a little bit conceptual, yeah. Yeah, but more the fun because of that. I think that was good. Yeah, I think so. I think I don't know, just big questions that we don't have answers to, right? Like, I mean, the facial recognition one is like much more grounded and much more now, right? These are these are technologies that are out and about and getting deployed, and we really need to get closer to keep working towards a consensus of what's cool and what's not and maybe laws to reflect that um but the chatbot sentience how we treat robots what that means about us as people what are the risks of these technologies that can really convincingly mimic humans all of that is i mean it's starting to become real but it's still a little way down the pipeline and it's it's i think a much harder set of questions we're much less advanced yeah and i'm sure yeah sure we'll get into them again and again over the next you know weeks and months so yeah 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 we'll come back with regular updates on lambda until lambda can take over the podcast (laughs) yeah (laughs) i look forward to it (laughs) all right talk next week cool see ya